Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. All right. Well, I'm super excited to introduce our next guest, Linda Gratton here, who is going to talk about what it means that we're all living longer and that 100 years may well be our average life expectancy very shortly. So you're going to learn in particular, one, the massive implications associated with living a 100-year life for your career and other elements. Two, the importance of spending time with people of different ages. And three, an easy tool that allows you to sort of step back and audit your own intangible assets at any point along your career. So if you want to check out the the summary, the show notes, the transcript, uh, drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep20. And if you want a real quick recap of this and everything from our guests, you can sign up for the gold nugget emails. So you get those goods in under two minutes right to your inbox. A little bit about Linda. Linda is a professor of management practice at London Business School, where she directs the world's leading program on human resources. Her eight books cover topics related to the impact of a changing world on employment and work. In 2012, her book, The Shift, received the Business Book of the Year Award in Japan and has been translated into more than 15 languages. Linda has been named one of the top 50 management thinkers in the world. Here's Linda. Linda, thank you so much for being on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. My pleasure. Very nice to speak to you today. Oh, certainly. Well, you have a very impressive bio, and I'd love to hear maybe uh, something fun about you that it does not show up in the credentials and the top thinker lists. Fun about me? I like to do lots of things. I like to hang around swimming in the Mediterranean. Oh, nice. I like to garden in my house in London, my garden in London. Uh, I like to travel. We just came back from some very exotic places. We've been to North Korea. We just recently went to Iran. So, yeah, I'm an adventurer. North Korea. Oh, wow. Yeah, North Korea. <laughs> that does sound adventurous. Well, and so, and it sounds like in your book, you're saying that many of us will have more years for adventuring in the 100-year life. Could you share with us a little bit, what is the background context for how you found this to be an interesting and worthwhile topic to dig into and its implications? Well, uh, my last book, last but one book was called The Shift. And in it, I really took a look at how is the world changing and how is technology and a whole set of other forces really reshaping our work and reshaping our careers. And one of the forces that came out was increasing longevity, the fact that so many of us are going to live a great deal longer. And I sort of rather left it at that until a colleague of mine, Andrew Scott, who's a professor here with me at London Business School, he and I started to talk more about this. Well, what happens when everybody lives to 100 years? And suddenly that became our igniting question. And for three years, that's all we thought about. Oh, that's fascinating. You lay out many implications for kind of governments and educational institutions and individuals. But first, I just kind of want to level set that, you know, the 100 year life story, you know, isn't just kind of a catchy title. Like this, these are actual life expectancy uh, data and values that we're seeing these days, right? Yes, absolutely. You know, over uh, the last 100 years or so, every 10 years, the generation born that year are predicted to live two years longer than the generation before. 
so, you know, clearly we are just living longer and longer and longer. And there's been a, a lot of controversy about how long people will live. I mean, some people will say, actually, you know, the age that we're living to now will level off because we're all eating too much and not exercising enough. Mm-hmm. Others are saying, no, no, there's a whole new uh, set of medicines and ways of thinking about the body that are going to push it right up to 140. I mean, we actually took a sort of, we're not demographers. Andrew Scott and I, are my co-author, are not demographers. He's an economist. I'm a psychologist. So we sort of read the demographic literature very carefully. And we came to the conclusion that you would be wise to imagine, certainly if you're young, and by young I mean in your 20s, that you will live until you're 100 years old. And even though you might not, it's, that's a risky assumption in terms of building a life over that period of time. Now, for someone like me, I'm in my 60s. It's unlikely that I will live to 100, although I might. It's more likely that I'm going to live to, you know, 90, 95. But even then, that's still a lot longer than my parents, and of course, a great deal longer than their, my grandparents. Oh, certainly. And I saw you had a great little ladder graphic image on your website, which we'll link in the show notes there, in which it showed, hey, if you're born in this year, this is kind of the expected kind of median uh, life expectancy. And for those born in 1987-ish, uh, which got many listeners around that area, you're expecting to be about 97 years. So just about 100 years is the the normal median as opposed to uh, an achievement worthy of getting in the newspapers. Absolutely. You know, it's very interesting, isn't it, that certainly in the UK, the Queen sends or used to send or perhaps still does actually, letters to everybody who's become 100 years old. In Japan, they get a silver salver, but both of those have really come under dispute because there's just so many. Mm -hmm. Well, Japan has actually stopped it completely, and I think the UK does, but there's quite a lot of secretaries that now have to send those those notes from the Queen. So uh, being 100 isn't going to be at all exceptional, and even when we ask my MBA students, how many people do you know who are over 100? They don't know very many. Well, they will know a great deal more as, as they themselves age. Mm-hmm. And so now I want to dig into a bit of these these implications here. In your personas, you called the person in, in her 20s Jane. So, and, and you broke it down that the three stages of education, career, retirement isn't really going to be so lockstep anymore. Can you give a perspective? So what can someone working in, in their 20s or 30s kind of expect from the, the future decades of work evolving? Well, well, as you rightly say, most people, and certainly corporations, and indeed governments, the tacit assumption is that people will have a period of full-time education and they will then move from full-time education to work and they then will leave work, full-time work, and move into some retirement and that will take place in lockstep. You know, most people will leave full-time education in their early to mid-20s, and most people will leave full-time work in their early to mid-60s. This just is not going to be happening in the future. Well, the major reason for that is the analysis that we've done show that the probability is that if you want to retire at 50% of your final income, which most of us do, and if you save maybe 10% of your income from the time that you start working and you expect to live to 100, you'll be working way into your 80s. And uh, people, I know, feel unhappy and annoyed about that. Um, It's (laughs) sort of a reality, really. The old book is about, well, how do we make this reality 
something that's a, a marvelous gift and rather than something that's a terrible curse. So, you know, if you're Jane and you're in your mid-twenties, as my own children are, then you will look forward to many stages of life. It won't simply be three stages. It can't possibly be. And we think that's a marvelous gift. And we think those who really, you know, hold that gift will, will lead productive and interesting and exciting lives. And so I'm curious, so what are some of the other stages? I'm thinking about one of our uh, someone helping out with the podcast, Emily. She's almost on like a mini retirement for a few months in, in Argentina. She had several years of working and advertising, and now it's sort of time for a timeout and then uh, another career after that. Is that what you envisioned by multi-stage or how would that work? Yes. Yes, certainly. You know, you know, you're absolutely right. There are new stages emerging. And actually, if you look around, just as you saw with Emily, that you can already see people beginning to want those stages. You know, remember that it took society many, many decades to come to terms with the idea of teenagers. It took society mm-hmm. many, many years to come, decades to come to the idea of retirees. So, so what might those new stages be? Well, well, here's three that we think are already emerging and we think will become much more part of many people's lives. The first, as you've, you've, you've said from your, watching your colleague, is what we would call a period of experimentation and exploration. Right now, the exploration stage tends to happen when people come out of college. Certainly here in Europe, the gap year is a very much something that, that young people do. But, but we, we think it's perfectly reasonable that people want to move into periods of exploration uh, at, at different times of their lives. Um, secondly, you know, one of the uh, curses, in a sense, of new, these new artificial intelligence and robotics and platforms is that they destroy many uh, middle-income jobs. We talk about that in the book. However, uh, what they also do is to provide platforms and opportunities for people to build their own businesses, small businesses, and to connect to the products of the world and indeed the customers of the world. And we think more and more people are going to be doing that. So we see a new stage uh, that we call the individual producer emerging. And finally... You know, for people in their 60s and 70s right now, some of them are building what you might call a portfolio career where they do a number of different jobs, uh, some of which are paid and some of which aren't. And we think that that's a very sensible way of balancing the sort of assets that you need. And so why wouldn't people do that at different stages in their lives? Um, And so when we ask our own MBA students who are in their mid-20s to write their life script and to think about all the stages that they're going to go through. What's really fascinating is how different those are. You know, that each person has really script, has, has created their own script. And uh, that's a marvelous thing to watch, really, to see how they could be much more responsive to their own needs and their own interests and aspirations. Mm-hmm. And so I guess that makes me curious then if, if we're kind of wrestling with, grappling with this implication of multiple stages and, and unique scripts, and there's many more years perhaps than we had, had budgeted or thought about kind of entering into careers, what would you say are, are some of the, the key takeaways, sort of action items, assignments that uh, people working in their 20s and 30s should really kind of elevate more toward the top of their lists that 
maybe they hadn't thought about before. Yeah, well, we've seen a good framing for this, and we spent a lot of time in our own thinking and writing developing the framing, is to think about the way that you spend your time as uh, spending time to build assets. Now, you know, historically, we've thought about the major assets that we have uh, being um, money, you know, pensions, salary, income, the money you, sp- money you put into your house. And actually, those tangible assets do turn out to be really, really important. So one of our first takeaways for any 20-year-old, and I say this to my own children, is get into the habit of saving. Um, you know, ask yourself, what would your 80-year-old self want you to do right mm-hmm. now? And occasionally, your 80-year-old self will say, stand back from that expensive cup of coffee and put the money into the bank. So, so that's really, we think that's really important in terms of tangible assets. But of course, in a long life, intangible assets become really important. And there's a number of actions that uh, you know, someone in their mid-20s can take right now to make sure that they're building their intangible assets rather than depleting them. So, so here's, here's the three other intangible assets and some ideas about how you might develop them. The first is productive assets. So the assets that help you remain productive right the way through your life. What are those things? Well, you know, one of them obviously is valuable skills. And that means that whilst you, the age of 20, may be investing right now in education, and that's a marvelous thing to do, you have to really bear in mind that one shot education is not going to be enough for you. And you have to start planning for coming back either to full-time education or maybe you know, taking time off uh, at various points in your life to refresh and to reskill. That's one of our views about, about how you would really build that. The second aspect of productive uh, assets is is reputation, and of course, in the past, people you know rep- people's reputation came from the com- company they worked with. If you worked with GE or Walmart or you know a company that everybody knows, that was your reputation. But when you're thinking about moving to different companies, you have to build your reputation on your own. So how do you do that? How do you show others that you're somebody who's skillful and trustworthy? And then thirdly, in terms of productive assets. We know that people learn a lot from being mentored and coached. So find yourself a mentor. Deliver now. Develop now mentoring relationships. So that's why some of the ways that we think people can build productive assets. But there's also two other types of assets. One is around your own vitality, which is how do you keep healthy and how do you invest now in keeping healthy and and keeping a work-life balance. And finally, the new asset class, which we believe to be very important, especially for young people, is how do you learn to transform yourself? And here's the thing. Uh, People who are good at transforming themselves are able to have deep knowledge about who they are, self-knowledge, and that comes from listening to others and getting feedback. And more importantly, they have diverse networks. And so what I would say to any 20 year old right now is make sure you're spending time with people who are not the same as you because you never know in that broad network of people who are different from you in terms of age and gender and function and nationality there may be people who are rather similar to what you would like to become next Mm. now it's also really important for people to audit 
where they are at any point in time and to help them to do that. If you go to our website, www.100yearlife.com, you'll see that we've built a, a short diagnostic that helps you to work out whether you're currently investing in your assets, whether you're simply maintaining them, or whether indeed you're, you're actually running them down. And I think that's a really useful thing for anybody to do. Oh, that does sound very useful. And, and so I'm curious then, in terms of over the course of your research, you talk about uh, self-knowledge and, and diverse networks in the transforming self category of assets. Are there any kind of particular, I don't know, quick wins or best practices or key activities that you really recommend folks do on a regular basis? Sounds like one is the audit from time to time. Make sure you're on track and growing in your assets. What are some other key things folks should do? Yeah, just, just just look at how you spend your day every day. You see, one thing that's really interesting is that, you know, research, particularly for middle-aged men, and I know that that's not necessarily a group that we're talking about now, shows that the majority of people they spend their time with are very similar to them. They're the same age, they're the same gender, and they have the same work interests. That means that they never really spot anyone who could be, you know, what they want to be, because everyone's the same as they are. So I think really monitor yourself and ask yourself, am I being too repetitive? Am I spending my time with too much with the same people? Am I, you know, doing, doing the same activities over and over again? Should I be more diverse in terms of who I spend time with, but also the activities that I engage in? And that, that I think would be a quick win. Mm -hmm. And that sounds like fun too. Yeah, yes. These adventures are, are not just for my amusement. They're, they're critical to me having a, a quality 100-year life. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm, I've always been a great adventurer, and uh, it's been a, a marvelous part of me thinking about myself, really, and, and transforming myself. Because, you know, as you move around the world and see different types of people and as you engage with different types of people, it's very inspirational, really, to see to see somebody who's who's so different. I I was at um, a dinner last night with a, a bunch of ladies, and as nine people who who meet occasionally, and they asked me to join them for dinner, and I and I said I'd love to do so. Well, we we were all women, so that was you know we weren't diverse mm -hmm. in that respect. But the youngest was 24, and the eldest was 72. And, you know, that age diversity was absolutely crucial to the quality of the conversation. And I do think, and it comes out very clearly in our own research, is that we've segmented the ages far too much. Make sure, and here's another quick win, make sure that you're spending time with people who are of different age to you. And I don't mean in a sort of, you know, parent-child relationship. I mean, actually as an equal. You know, I heard a 24-year-old talking to a 72-year-old as equals. Both of them had something important to say. Both of them had interesting reflections about their lives. And it was just a marvelous thing to watch, actually. Oh, that is lovely. Thank you. I'm about to shift gears. I know we're in our final minutes here to the Fast Faves segment, where I kind of ask you quick questions about your favorite uh, book or quote or, or other pieces. But before we do so, is there anything else you really want to make sure we, we get out there to uh, this audience? No, I think, you know, I think focus on the assets. I mean, one thing we haven't talked about at all is your relationship with your family. And, and we, we devoted a whole chapter in the book to that. And, and really what we're saying is, you know, traditionally uh, in shorter lives, 
it really worked with one partner taking responsibility for tangible assets, i.e., you know, making the money, and the other taking responsibility for intangible assets, bringing up the children, you know, building a community. We think that that's a very risky strategy, and we think that more and more couples, uh, and indeed, you know, anyone who's living with somebody else will have to think much more creatively about how both of them contribute to the development of both tangible and intangible assets. And that requires, you know, a partnership that's going to be much more based on on trust and commitments than perhaps was required in the past. Oh, understood. Thank you. Well then, shifting gears here, how about a favorite study or piece of research you find yourself referencing repeatedly? Oh, well, I mean, I've just got loads of those. Um, right back to uh, Paul Evans's work, you know, uh, 30 years ago, called "Must Success Cost So Much," which where he interviewed, you know, men about their their experiences of trying to be fathers, which which I found just incredibly sort of thought provoking. Right through to Charles Handy's work on how people manage portfolios. I think Friedman's work on how you balance work and life. These are all sort of marvelous things. And of course, as a psychologist, you you get pulled back to Jung in particular in terms of his thinking about how people manage their conscious and unconscious lives. And I, and I read quite a lot, actually, of psychotherapists around how people manage their lives. Oh, interesting. And, and so that's one of my next question is, do you have a particular life management habit or personal practice you found has really been instrumental for your effectiveness? Well, I think it's, you know, I, I try to work out, you know, what my best moments are really. And so, you know, over time, obviously, I've worked out what those are. So, for example, and it happened today, I know that I'm at my most creative first thing in the morning. So I tend to block out the mornings for writing. And I did that this morning and it was a very good thing to do. Um, I know I'm quite introverted. So although I love teaching, I was teaching all last week. I really need time on my own and I really need time downtime or else I get you know, I get really, really tired. I know that traveling and adventures are very important to me and I always give time every year to go to a place or a couple of places I've never been to before. You know, Ethiopia, incredible place. Um, Rwanda, we're just about, we're just, you know, booking a holiday to Argentina. I just, for me, just seeing the world is a huge source of excitement and I know that that makes me feel better. Oh, lovely. Because I mean to, you know, I mean to be working into my 80s. So uh, <laughs> I want to have a lot of fun, even whilst I do so. Oh, good thought. Good thought. And, and can you share with us, uh, what's a, a favorite sort of nugget of yours or piece of content that when you share, it really gets folks kind of nodding their heads, retweeting or, or highlighting in the Kindle version of your books? <laughs> I mean, I think one of the sort of exciting aspects of moving from more traditional lives to moving to uh, the sort of lives we describe in the 100-year life is that you've just got more opportunities to be yourself. And I really think that if you can find, if you can explore who you are and describe who you are, that's just a wonderfully invigorating, energizing thing. And if you can really focus on you know, how you are at your very best and try to develop habits to increase that, that, then again, I think it's a marvelous thing. Oh, absolutely. And do you have a, a favorite sort of parting thought or challenge or call to action for those seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Organizations are incredible context creators for people. Sometimes you're in a company where you just feel so energized and sometimes you're in a company that you feel so downhearted about. 
And I think, you know, I would recommend to people that they're very thoughtful about finding places that energize them and, and not to rush into the selection process. You know, really try and understand what is this place going to be like and actually use, you know, use as much time as possible to do that. And then secondly, you know, of course, give a place time. But if after a year you still hate it, then just just leave. I think, you know, caustic, unhappy workplaces are, are a terrible thing and people should definitely walk away from them if they can. Oh, perfect. Well, well, thank you. A good reminder there. Linda, this has been so fun and we'll provide links to the 100yearlife.com and, and other resources. Is there any kind of particular way you'd like for folks to, to find you or reach out to you? Oh, yes. I mean, please do. Just come to our website and you'll see that we have a whole narrative going on there. You know, you can take the diagnostic uh, and you can contribute your story and, and people are really doing that at the moment. And please do also tweet uh, where, we, where, tweet, where we have a big sort of social media interest at the moment. We have a lot of press happening right now. So if you want to hear more about the reviews of the book or interviews with us, just come onto the website or, or follow us on, on Twitter and, and you'll hear more about our sort of day-to-day activities as we try and create the 100-year life as a debate that's happening all over the world. Oh, beautiful. Thank you. Looking forward to that. And, and I wish you the best in your 40-ish uh, years to come. Thank you. Well, I hope that gets you thinking about your life and career on a longer horizon and what that means and strategic decisions and investments you should be making along the way. Thanks for listening and look forward to catching you next time. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.